Please be seated. One of my favorite spiritual books is a book called The Screwtape Letters, which many of you will have read. C.S. Lewis, a very famous author who maybe is more famous for writing the Narnia stories, wrote many books along this vein in which he wrote uh, fictional works that also had a deep spiritual meaning. Narnia, of course, is part of that, but one of the ones that's most famous outside of the Narnia series is a book called The Screwtape Letters. And C.S. Lewis imagines what it's like if a senior uh, devil is writing to a junior devil about how to lead people astray here on earth. It's an entertaining read, and it sort of warns you a little bit about typical ways that the evil one may lead us astray, or sometimes our own appetites. But what I thought was really interesting is that I read a, a short essay he wrote afterwards, in which he was asked about the experience of writing. And he said, it was interesting when I wrote the screw tape letters, how I found it actually fairly easy to get into the mind of evil and to write from the perspective of an evil character. I actually found it much more difficult to write good characters in places like the Great Divorce or in Narnia, because so often good characters in literature seem flat and boring and completely uninspiring. Evil creatures are often easier to write. Now, he, he speculated on some reasons, and I'll talk about that a bit later, but I certainly noticed that in popular culture. When I look at the sort of shows that I typically watch on television, apart from the sort of mindless comedies that sometimes we turn to, Many of the shows that are most critically acclaimed and ones that I like the most are ones where the characters are deeply, deeply flawed. For example, Breaking Bad, I thought, was one of the best series on television in the past several years, but it's about a man who begins as a petty tyrant and ends up becoming a drug kingpin. You look at that and think it's realistic, he's got depth. But so often, if I look at that series, I realize he was an interesting character, but many of the good characters were flat and boring. I find that really interesting, and why I reflect on that uh, today is because today we look at the Feast of All Saints. Saints are people who, sometimes uh, because of the Roman Catholic background, we Protestants, Anglicans, and Lutherans don't think much about the saints, but in fact, they're deeply important in Christian theology. We talk about the communion of saints in our uh, creed. We talk about being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses in the letter to the Hebrews. These are people whose godliness shone through in this life, and we recognize them for the particular way in which they've inspired people to follow Christ because of their Christ-likeness. And so traditionally on today, the Feast of All Saints, we read about the New Jerusalem uh, and how it's adorned and beautiful, and we read this because we want to be inspired by a heavenly vision. But as a preacher, I often run against the same problem C.S. Lewis did. It's so often easier to warn us against the dangers of evils in the world and so often when we preach, when we preach about heaven, it almost seems as if it's a flat, kind of uninspiring thing. I remember somebody once saying, I wouldn't want to go to heaven anyway because I find harp music really irritating. <laughs> so often our lack of imagination prevents us from talking about heaven in a way that actually inspires. So at the risk of setting up your hopes too high, I want to speak about why it is that our vision of heaven actually is something inspiring to us. We need to hold on to in this life. And then secondly, to speak to you a little bit about why it is that we continue to find it hard, even as Christians who believe in the resurrection, to hold on to a heavenly vision. And finally, uh, and briefly, to speak about how we can still hold on to it, despite the many challenges there are to really embracing a heavenly vision. Now, we look at that heavenly vision, I'll start off by saying, the vision of the new Jerusalem can easily make us believe this seems like a boring kind of thing, right? Look at uh, this Great thing from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6, is often read at funerals as well. Listen to this description. 
that St. John gives us of a vision of heaven. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, etc., etc. You look at that and you think, well, that's beautiful. It sounds beautiful. But how does that actually relate to me? Doesn't this seem like some far-off vision where everything is gone and something new replaces it? It's interesting when you read this a little bit closer, though, of all the ways that God could have revealed what the new heaven and the new earth looks like. He revealed to John not something completely different from his experience, but instead something that was recognizably Jerusalem, the Jerusalem transformed. He didn't sort of drop something out of the sky that looked like an alien village. In fact, he dropped something from the heavens that John said, aha, that's Jerusalem, I can tell. But Jerusalem wondrously and fabulously transformed. Look at what he says when he says, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Think about when uh, you, you've attended a wedding or maybe your own wedding. What happens then? It's not that, you know, I sub out the person I've been dating with somebody who's uh, perfect. Instead, what do I do? You sort of prepare yourself by putting on your very best clothes. You maybe uh, eat well so that you don't feel like you're all kind of greasy, haven't eaten poutine the night before. What do you want to do? You, you go to bed hopefully early if you can do it. You hydrate. You make sure your hair looks great. You make sure you've got all the details worked out so you don't have to be stressed out when you get in front of the altar. Why? Because you want to look the very best of who you are. Now, when the person says, I take you to be my husband or I take you to be my wife, they take you in good times and in bad. We reflect that there will be bad times, there will be poor times, there will be sick times. But you also recognize that what drew you to this person is that there are also times of richness, times of beauty, times of goodness, times of joy. In this wedding, we put on our best garments to say not, you're marrying somebody else, you're marrying me, and part of what your responsibility is is to help me to be the very best that I can be, the person God made me to be. Look at the new Jerusalem. What do we see in that? We see Jerusalem, that same old Jerusalem, but unlike the many ways in which Jerusalem is so deeply wounded, sorrowful, and violent as it is today, God has not wiped away Jerusalem, but instead adorned her like a bride for her husband, telling us that Jerusalem has not been changed into something unlike the original Jerusalem but instead Jerusalem purified to become the Jerusalem God made her to be. Look a little closer. He says, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. But he says this, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's not that there will be no tracks of tears that we can relate to. There will be. What's different about this? For the last time, all of those tears that have been built up in our life, like we've often wiped them away in times of sorrow, be wiped away for good. Not that there won't ever have been tears and something totally unrecognizable, but that the pain and sorrows will be transformed. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. We will have died at this point, but what has changed? The sting of death will have been removed. That thing that makes sorrowful our souls when death comes upon us. The point I'm trying to make here is to say this. So often when we think about a heavenly vision, we think of something far off, completely different from our experience, but the vision we're given here is the vision of God saying, you already see heaven in glimpses of the world around you. What will be different 
is that those things which obscure your vision and obscure your ability to see the value of things around you will be taken away and you will see them for what they were made to be. Think of what Jesus does here at the grave of Lazarus. He is deeply moved in spirit. Jesus weeps because he sees the pain and the sorrow and the physical nastiness. Uh, Martha says his body's going to stink. He's been there for four days. Jesus weeps at the genuine sorrow, but what does he do? He raises Lazarus, calls him out, and raises him from death. Not only is this a great thing, it happens just before Jesus' own crucifixion. This is a foretaste, John's Gospel is telling us, of what all of us can look forward to. Jesus is raised from the dead, which means what Lazarus experienced is what all of us will, but transformed. Jesus appears to his disciples, and yes, in such a different guise, radically transformed, they don't notice it first, but as soon as Jesus speaks, they see it's the Lord, wonderfully transfigured, still with those nails uh, making imprints in his hands, but wonderfully transformed and no longer uh, prevented from even walking through doors. Here is Jesus, wonderfully transfigured, and that is the hope we have of heaven. That what is best in us, what we know the Lord is calling to us, that these are the things that God will burnish and make see brightly, like the gold and and silver that are tarnished, all the dross wiped away, so that we who we really were made to be will shine forth. That's so helpful for us because so often, I think, our challenge when we think about a heavenly vision is that we are challenged by thinking of harps that seem irrelevant to our lives. Instead, what God's calling us to do is to ask, can we look around at our daily life and think about what these things could be when transformed by God's presence? I mean, it may sound silly to us, but what would it look to us if we looked around and we saw a new barhaven descending from the heaven like a bride adorned for her husband? What would that barhaven look like, and how can we serve that barhaven? What ways in which people who live in poverty or in addiction or in relational breakdown, what ways will this place that we call home be changed if only we allow our eyes to see what God is already doing and say, God, we will participate? Because we want to be part, not just of the bar haven that is now, but the bar haven that you mean it to be, which we will see one day when Christ returns. I want to live with the vision of that bar haven today. Or think for us as individuals, we look in the mirror. What would it be like if we were to look in the mirror and not just see the ways that we often fail? Not just see how we are, but start to see what God made us to be. To see through our faults and failings and disappointments and sorrows and say, I want to look in this mirror and see what God sees I will become. Imagine for a moment what kind of person you would be if every time you heard the call of God in your life, You heard the whisper of his conscience speaking to you, and instead of you saying, well, that sounds difficult, or, oh, I have my doubts, you said, you know what? I'm going to put aside my hesitations, put aside my doubts and my fears, and when the Lord speaks to me to become all that he has made me to be, I am going to lean in. I am going to throw myself with with no abandon, to throw myself into what God has called me to be. Imagine what you would do, and let that be your vision that inspires you to become the better person God wants you to be. Not weighed down by the ways you failed, but instead buoyed up and filled with hope at what God can make you to be. All Saints today challenges us to say, what could I be and what's stopping me from listening to the voice God has given because His grace is abundant and will help us become what He wants us to be. Now I mentioned secondly what I wanted to speak about is why it's difficult for us to hold on to that. And I think one of the biggest reasons is because we particularly live in an age in which we are told all these wonderful visions that never come true. 
not unique to our age. I mean, Karl Marx used to say that, that religion's the opiate of the masses because it says, oh, think about heaven and don't worry about how you're being oppressed by the factory owners. I understand that that can be a legitimate concern. But I will tell you that today we often have a hard time believing in heaven, not because of Marxist critique, but because we are bombarded constantly by messages of people trying to sell us something for their own interest that end up being nothing. I remember a good uh, 20 years ago, I think it was, when I was uh, still in college, might have been actually in high school, I was asked on an assignment to go and measure uh, and count the number of times you encountered an advertisement in the day. And so I can't remember the number, but it was hundreds. You begin to realize, well, there's an advertisement. I was sitting on the bus, and I can look and see 20 of them around me. Or I was listening to the radio, and I heard an ad. Or I was driving in my car, and I passed by a billboard. That was before the Internet. What is it like now when you carry every time you pick up your phone? What I find is, you know, I've got a phone so that when I go and visit a restaurant, and then I get out, I hear it bing, because Google has just sent me a little thing saying, what was your restaurant experience like? And would you like to rate the pizza at Colonnade? And I'm thinking, I didn't even put this in my phone. I can't help it. I'm getting bombarded by messages saying, I want to do this thing or another with you. And it holds out a message that we know isn't true. And so we shut down in our mind, I can't believe anything I hear. Become people who have a hard time believing in something greater. So how do we do that? How do we come to believe in this message and believe it's something different than what Google tells me every time my phone beeps? And I'd like to suggest why we look at the saints for inspiration is not because they were so different from us, but instead because they were so much similar to us, but that they were people who listened to that voice and said, what if I did exactly what God wanted me to do and stop making excuses? If they were to look and say, what could this world become if only I put myself fully at God's pleasure and did what God wanted of me? Those are the people who are not living off in some cloud. Instead, they're the people who've made the biggest impact. Just a, a, a last month, and somebody I know is, is very close to, to Ed's heart, is um, when uh, uh, several years ago in the 1980s, uh, Bishop Romero was killed in El Salvador. It was a time of civil strife, a time of poverty, a time of corruption. Here was a man who spoke again and again, despite the challenges and risks to his life, about corruption and violence and disorder in his society. And he spoke, as Oscar Romero spoke often, about what is evil and refused to make peace with injustice. It cost him his life. Why could he do this? Why was he sainted? Why was he recognized by the Roman Catholic Church as a saint? Not because he spent all his time uh, contemplating heaven, as much as contemplation is important, but because his vision of heaven allowed him without fear to stand up against evil knowing there was a place for him. And that he wanted to be part of God's efforts of renewal in this world. Think of Mother Teresa. Here's a, a little less than five feet tall, tiny little Albanian woman. A puff of wind would blow her over. But she sees the grit and the terror and the horrible poverty on the streets of Calcutta. And she doesn't just see that. She sees what Calcutta and the untouchable class in, in Calcutta could be if God's spirit was given free reign. And so she spent her entire life cleaning after people with dysentery, uh, helping prostitutes who are, who are treated horribly to feel that there is something special about who they are because they were made in God's image. This is not a woman who had no difference in this world because she believed in heaven. Here was a woman who transformed this world because she allowed God's spirit to work through her to help people see a little bit of heaven on a nasty piece of earth like the poverty, uh, 
poverty-stricken streets of Kolkata. So what are we to do? When we have doubts and fears about heaven, I suggest the best thing we can do is to look those people, look to those people around us or in our history and to see those people who are heavenly-minded and see how much their lives make a difference. Hold on to the vision of heaven. Be inspired to hold on to the vision of heaven and resurrection by the people whose goodness is infectious around us. In my own life, I can think of so many going down from my grandma to others, the ones who believed so firmly in heaven that they made so great a difference in this earth. What's our call to today? Our call is not to take harp lessons. But our call is today is to look at the vision that God has given to us in the lives of his saints and say, you know what? That is the kind of person I want to be because I want to be all God has made me to be. And when I'm all that God has made me to be, I will help him as he works to make this world all he made it to be as well.